Plein de Paris, plein de Paris, qui ont venu plein de Paris. Madame, s'il vous plaît, achetez-moi ce fleur de Paris. Ça vous portera bonheur. Et vous, monsieur, voulez-vous acheter ce fleur Ce sont des fleurs de Paris. Allez, mesdames et messieurs, des fleurs de Paris. Des fleurs de Paris, qui ont venu plein de Paris. So this is our fourth of four L'Atelier Balmain episodes, examining the first couture presentation for Balmain, which happened just a little over 75 years ago. And if you haven't listened to those previous three podcasts about that first Balmain show, you might want to stop now and go back and listen to those episodes before you start listening to this one. In one of those past shows, we spoke with the award-winning author and illustrator Myra Kalman about her latest project, a re-edition of Gertrude Stein's classic, Autobiography of Alice B. Toklas. As we discussed in that episode, Common relied on her unique talent as a storyteller, illustrator, and designer to enrich Stein's classic work. In particular, to highlight the many famous names mentioned in that autobiography, Common painted about 70 fresh, colorful takes on iconic photos of the famous names that Toklas and Stein entertained in Paris, providing us with new, playful twists on legendary images of geniuses like Picasso, Toulouse-Lautrec, Man Ray, Duchamp, Hemingway, and dozens of others. There's one image in particular that caught my eye as I read the book. So when we spoke, I asked Myra about that very striking illustration, which is set toward the end of this new version of the autobiography. So Myra, talking about what you did for the autobiography with all those beautiful paintings you made. There's particularly one that pops out for me. You decided to reinterpret that famous Vogue photo of Gertrude Stein. So in the photo, we see her seated inside the Balmain showroom. She's seated in one of those little chairs and Basket, her white poodle, is sitting next to her. And in the photo, Gertrude is gazing up at this Balmain house model in a cape who is just towering over her. And so just my apologies, I know it's sometimes really tough to describe an image for a podcast, but would you mind telling us what was it about that image and that moment that inspired you to choose it for this beautiful illustration that you've included in your book? I'm always fascinated by fashion, delighted by fashion, love walking around and seeing what people are wearing. So there is this wonderful photo, and Gertrude is in her big coat and a pea cap, and uh, with her big fluffy white dog basket in a fancy room where you wouldn't expect her to be. But there she is with this wonderful model in an incredible fanciful gown. And you realize that there is no limit to what you can be interested in. You can find yourself anywhere in a in looking at fashion and looking at art, music, architecture, dance. There's no limit to curiosity, and that's the feeling of expansiveness with humor and just sheer giddy delight is clear in this photo. C'est une fleur de Paris, du vieux Paris qui sourit, car c'est la fleur du retour, du retour des Hello, I'm John Gilligan. For today's L'Atelier Balmain podcast, after having spent three episodes discussing the creation and presentation of the first Balmain collection, 
as well as those larger-than-life personalities connected with that moment? Well, today, we're going to start off by concentrating on one incredible 75-year-old black-and-white photo. It's that classic image that Myra Coleman so very perfectly sums up as being one of just sheer giddy delight. With the help of fashion and photography experts, we'll be examining the story and the people behind the creation of that photo. And we'll see how it helped to make very clear, once again, the deep friendship that Gertrude Stein and Pierre Baman shared. And we'll also hear how this fantastic image, taken by one of the 20th century's greatest photographers, was only the first of many that that same photographer would take of Pierre Baman creations. I am Olivier Roustin. Welcome to my world. Welcome to my world. Bienvenue à l'atelier Balmain. Bienvenue à l'atelier Balmain. Okay, so the photo of Gertrude Stein that Myra Coleman was just describing for us, it was part of a legendary 1946 Vogue shooting session that took place here in Paris. It was organized by Rosamund Bernier, who at that time had just been sent to Paris by American Vogue to cover the collections of post-war Paris, and Bernier was eventually to become the magazine's European Features Editor. Bernier is a fascinating woman, and she lived an amazing life. If you're looking for a fun read, you might want to consider her memoirs, Some of My Lives, a scrapbook memoir, which was published in 2011. But anyway, here's just a taste. Rosamund Beignet grew up in an affluent household on Philadelphia's main line. Her father was the chairman of the Philadelphia Symphony Orchestra, which helps explain why music always seemed to be a central part of her life ever since her childhood. And really, how could it not have been? Among her parents' house guests were some of the 20th century's leading classical composers, violinist and pianist, including Rachmaninoff, Stukowski, and Ormandy. And just like some of the other fascinating personalities that we've been discussing during these recent episodes, Bernier was one of those incredibly well-connected people, someone who seemed to know, and okay, yes, I'm going to say it once again, she seemed to know everyone. For example, when she lived in Mexico, she hung out with Diego Rivera and Frida Kahlo. Later, when she was in Paris, writing and editing the celebrated bilingual monthly art magazine, Caloy, which she co-founded in 1955, she leveraged her close friendships with that age's greatest artists, Leger, Picasso, Matisse, Miro, and Brock, to create a dozen years' worth of noteworthy articles and photo shoots on some of the art world's greatest creations and creators. And when she returned to the States and married the New York Times art critic John Russell in 1975, well, let's just note that the wedding took place at Philip Johnson's legendary glass house in New Canaan, Connecticut, and she was given away by her friend Aaron Copeland, and Leonard Bernstein's wife was her maid of honor. So when Vogue directed Bernier to arrange a shooting of Gertrude Stein in 1946, she only needed to ask an old friend to help connect her to the famous author. That friend, the composer Virgil Thompson, had collaborated with Stein on the opera Four Saints and Three Acts, and he put the two of them in touch. In a Vogue article published 10 years ago, Rosamund Bernier shared the backstory of that Stein shooting. Gertrude Stein was happy enough to do the shooting, but she had one condition. She asked that it take place inside Pierre Baumann's new showroom, because Stein very much wanted to promote the new couture house of her friend. 
Stein explained to Bernier just how important Bauman's wartime visits had been for Stein and Toklas when they were living in the countryside, and how happy the couple was to cheer on Bauman when he had recently presented his house's first collection. In that same 2012 Vogue article, Bernier notes that the most famous image from that photo session, the same iconic shot that Myra Coleman was describing when we first started this episode, was something that Bernier still kept framed on her coffee table 65 years after she had arranged that shooting. As she explained to Vogue, it amused me so much, Gertrude Stein looking as she did, and then this glamorous creature with a ruff towering over and looking down at her. And Basket was right there. I thought the combination was quite wonderful. And to capture that wonderful combination, Vogue and Bernier relied on one of the magazine's favorite photographers, one who had only recently returned to Europe after having left France shortly before the war began. That photographer, Horst, is of course the man behind many of 20th century fashion's most celebrated images. He is known for his unmistakable and distinctive style, one that continues to inspire today. And that now iconic horse photo of Stein seated inside the Bauman showroom was only one of many photos that came out of an incredible two-day session. And it's also only the first of several impressive horse shootings that focused on a Pierre Bauman creation. Because over the next several decades, Horst was, of course, to photograph the house's designs several times. To help us learn more about the life of Horst and understand a bit about his unique style and accomplishments, we reached out to Susanna Brown. Susanna is a photography curator at London's Victoria and Albert Museum, which is better known to all of us as the V&A. She's overseen some of the V&A's very impressive exhibits on photography over the past 12 years, including a 2012 exhibit on Cecil Beaton, as well as the acclaimed 2019 show on Tim Walker. And luckily for us, there's probably nobody more qualified to speak about Horst than Susanna. She edited the V&A's beautiful book on Horst and curated the museum's 2014 show, Horst, Photographer of Style, which was an international touring exhibit that showcased over 250 images drawn from Horst's six-decade career. Susanna Brown called into the podcast from her home in London a month ago to help us understand a little more about Horst, his work, and that 1946 Gertrude Stein photo session as well as the later connections between Horst and Bauman. And as Susanna makes clear, Horst, who was actually born Horst Paul Albert Bormann in 1904 in a small town near Leipzig in Germany, was already a very successful fashion photographer by the time he first entered the new Bauman showroom. By the time Bauman launched his business, uh, the German-born photographer Horst was well known in fashion circles in both Europe and America. He'd moved away from Germany to Paris in 1930 to work as an apprentice to the famous architect Le Corbusier, but Horst quickly became bored and quite disillusioned with the work there. Uh, But he was young, he was handsome, he quickly made friends and came to form close friendships with the novelist Julian Green and the great supporter of the arts, Gerald Kelly. And it was through Gerald Kelly that Horst met the chief photographer of French Vogue, the very grandly named Baron George Heunigen Hune, 
more commonly known simply as Hune. Horst started a relationship with Hune and they, they moved in together. He was an occasional model in Hune's fashion pictures, posing alongside women in couture almost as a, a prop uh, or a piece of furniture uh, there to sort of make the women look good in Hune's pictures. But he was also uh, a photographic assistant for Hune and his protégé. And it was Hune who taught Horst how to use the, the large, very cumbersome plate camera in the Paris Vogue studio and manipulate uh, the complex system of lights. And then, toward the end of 1931, Horst's own photographs began showing up in Vogue, starting what would eventually become a 60-year partnership with the magazine, one which actually lasted up through the 80s, when Anna Wintour was still commissioning Horst's shootings. Horst's long collaboration with the magazine was eventually to result in over 90 Vogue covers shot by Horst. As Susanna Brown makes clear, it was during his early years working for Vogue in Paris in the 30s when Horst began developing his own distinct and recognizable style. During his early years at, at Vogue, uh, Horst quickly became known as a, a master of light. He showed enormous flair for manipulating the studio lights working you know, almost as a sculptor, chisels, marble, carving the forms of the models and the gowns with lighting. And that was a technique that prevailed throughout the whole 60-year career that Horst enjoyed with Vogue. He conjured a world of sensual sophistication and his photographs are very much characterised by this wonderful fusion of Baroque, surreal and classical uh, motifs. Like George Hoynigan Hune, Horst was very heavily inspired by Greek and Roman art and together they spent many hours visiting the Paris museums and galleries to find inspiration for their own photography and they spent time uh, in Greece uh, enjoying that particular quality of sunlight uh, which is something they tried to translate and convey in their studio photographs. I think it's also perhaps interesting to note that both Alman and Horst had trained in architecture, so they brought the skills that they'd learned early on in that particular field to their respective later professions. And throughout the 1930s, of course, before Balmain had set up his own business, Horst was photographing couture by Coco Chanel, Schiaparelli, the, all the great names working in Paris, but also shuttling back and forth on the grand ocean liners of the era, working for American Vogue in New York. Later in the 1930s, um, as the the threat of war loomed in France, Horst began to make plans to leave Paris, where he didn't feel safe, and start a new life more permanently in New York. And it was really with the help of his friends at Vogue magazine, in particular the editor Edna Woolman Chase and Mr Condé Nast, that Horst was able to leave France on the 23rd of August of 1939, just a very short time 
before the outbreak of war. And he travelled on the steamship, the SS Normandy, which arrived five days later in New York. And as well as many hundreds of passengers keen to flee Europe, the ship carried several thousand precious garments purchased from the Paris couturiers by American fashion buyers specifically for the market in the US. Of course, Horst couldn't have known at that time that this would be the Normandy's final Atlantic crossing or that war would prevent him from seeing his beloved Paris again uh, until 1946. And when Horst was finally able to return to Paris, after the end of the war, he came back to a very changed city. Many of the couture houses that he'd known and worked with before the war were now closed. New talents would, of course, begin to replace them, as the French fashion industry started on the long road back to recovery. And for one of Horst's first Vogue shoots in the liberated French capital, the magazine brought him back to the city to shoot inside the brand new house of the newest young star of Parisian couture, Pierre Beaumont. Horst stayed, as he did on subsequent visits to Paris, at the Hotel Crillon, which at that time was the only hotel with heating in Paris. So he was living there in, in relative luxury compared to many of the citizens in Paris. And he stayed there with uh, his friend, the Vogue fashion illustrator, Carl Erickson, uh, who was known as Eric, and Rosamund Bernier, who was Vogue's first European features editor and it was Rosamund Bernier who arranged the sitting with Gertrude Stein which took place over two days in Paris and many pictures were made um, during the sitting but there are three that have become particularly uh, well known uh, that I'd love to talk about a little bit more. So on the, the first of the two days they spent together Horst photographed Gertrude at Valmont's Atelier at number 44, Rue François Première, and we see her in this photograph seated on an elegant little chair, empty chairs around her, uh, with her poodle, Basket, uh, or more properly, Basket II uh, is the name of her poodle, who's seated calmly beside her. And she gazes up from her chair at a model in a supremely glamorous piece of evening wear. And I feel looking at this picture that appearances of these two women are almost polar opposites. One, a woman in her 70s, sort of huddled in her coat, sitting down low. Uh, another incredibly tall, young, confident, elegant figure. And interestingly, there's an uncropped version of this photograph, which isn't so frequently published, where we see two tiny little figures on the extreme right of the picture who are actually uh, the illustrator Eric and Rosamund Bernier from Vogue watching this photo shoot unfold from the wings, uh, as it were. That Balmain showroom shooting was only the first day in the first location of a two-day Vogue shooting. On the next day, Horst, Eric, Bernier, and the rest of the crew left the Hotel Crillon 
crossed the Seine River and headed to Stein and Toklas' home on the left bank to continue the shoot. And, as Susanna Brown makes clear, Horst captured some beautiful images on that second day as well. There are two particularly well-known pictures from that day. In the first, we see Gertrude sitting in front of a large window uh, with Horst standing just behind her. The natural daylight streams in and illuminates their faces. And to me, it's almost reminiscent of a painting by Vermeer, the 17th century artist who was so well known for his ability to capture daylight in interiors. Uh, In the foreground of the photograph, we see a, a pile of books and newspapers on a table. And at the extreme left, we see Eric's own hand He's sketching a portrait of Gertrude, which would later be published in American Vogue in June of that year. And in the background of the photograph, we see a painting of the beloved poodle basket hanging on the wall, uh, a very well-known picture by Marie uh, Laurencin, the painter. And in another photograph, we see perhaps one of the best-known painted portraits of Gertrude herself. It's a portrait by Picasso, painted in about 1905 or 6, and today it's part of the collection in the Metropolitan Museum of New York. The painting hangs above a large fireplace, and in the photograph we see Gertrude and Horst together, side by side, standing in front of this incredible portrait by Picasso. The painting was made at the end of Picasso's so-called Rose period and there's a a very uh, informative text on the website of the Metropolitan Museum describing how Picasso uh, reduced Gertrude Stein's body to simple masses and this this painting can be seen as very much a foreshadowing of his adoption of cubism. But back to Horst's photography, part of the reason these photographs have become particularly important in later years is because they are in fact the last portraits that were made of Stein. Um, She died a a very few short months after the pictures were made. And interestingly for, for our conversation today, she chose to wear for the sitting with Horst her newest suit made for her by Balmain um, and today housed in the collection of textiles and fashion at the V&A. The ensemble comprises a slightly flaring skirt, uh, a jacket and a hat with black tassels and sequins and the the whole ensemble is constructed in a, a brown velvet. Horst's now famous two-day shooting of Gertrude Stein for Vogue was the first time the legendary photographer ever worked with Balmain Creations. Over the years to come, he would, of course, photograph several other Pierre Balmain designs. In fact, as Lynn Yeager, the award-winning fashion journalist, points out, Horst oversaw another noteworthy 1946 Vogue shooting of Balmain Creations. It was for a special eight-page spread for the September 15, 1946 issue of Vogue. That spread highlighted some exclusive designs that Pierre Balmain had created for a one-of-a-kind collaboration. Lynn spoke to us about the shooting when she recently called in from New York. So Lynn, speaking of Horst and Balmain, in this old issue of Vogue from September 15, 1946, 
There's this beautiful photo by Horst that he shot of a Balmain blue rayon crepe couture gown, which the magazine notes was a new look from Paris designed at the request of Madame Rubinstein. What can you tell us about the story behind this photo? Well, Pierre Balmain actually talks about this 1946 Vogue shooting in his memoirs. He was thrilled about this horse shooting, not only because it was so beautiful, but also because Vogue actually gave him six color pages. The gown and the shooting were part of a very clever push by Helena Rubinstein, the famous Polish-Australian-American cosmetics entrepreneur. She had reached out to Balmain for a launch of a line of cosmetics that would be represented by Balmain Couture. And for his part of this partnership, Pierre Balmain designed eight different ensembles with each meant to reflect different hours of the day because he liked to change eight times a day. I know I do. (laughs) From tailored morning wear to more elegant couture designs for evening. Obviously, this was a big success for a brand new designer. So soon after his very first collection, to land this kind of partnership with such a respected company and get that kind of a major splash in vogue. In fact, part of the promotion was a big launch at a New York department store, which had been given the exclusive rights to make and sell copies of the Bauman designs. Rubenstein also paid for what must have been a substantial ad promotion for this collaboration. Bauman mentioned that the ad seemed to be posted inside every Manhattan elevator. And Rubenstein also gave a big reception inside her Park Avenue penthouse to present the Bauman to the American Press and Society. But as often happens in fashion, Bauman's great relationship with this very important businesswoman was to come crashing to a sudden and drastic end just a few years later. Bauman was showing his collection in Paris and someone who he described as being an elderly lady with her neck way down with huge gray pearls arrived late to the presentation. She wasn't allowed inside. Hey, I know the feeling because the <laughs> Bauman assistant didn't recognize who she was. Been there. And yes, of course, it was Helena Rubinstein. At that time, though, Rubenstein was going by a different name. She had married a handsome young man from Georgia, the country, not the state, who went by the name of, get this, Prince Archil Gurielli Chaconia, <laughs> although it appears that he was not actually from a noble family, so maybe not even a prince. Maybe he should have hung out with the princess. Anyway, <laughs> Helena seemed happy with her new husband and very happy with the title. So she was going by the name Princess Gorielli at that moment. When she wasn't allowed into the Bauman show, she screamed at the Bauman assistant, I am Princess Gorielli. I was your first American customer, and I shall never buy anything here again. And Bauman finishes telling the story in his memoir with a short note. Helena Rubinstein kept her word. Well, although Bauman's partnerships with Helena Rubinstein might have ended a bit quicker than he wished, he did continue to have his designs shot by Horst. When I spoke with Susanna Brown, she mentioned that Horst photographed many Balmain creations for Vogue over the following decades, and that one of her favorite images comes from a very special shooting from 1953 with the Swedish model Lisa Fonsegreves. Fonsegreves, who is often described as the modern age's first supermodel, was a favorite of Horst, and for that 1953 shooting, Horst set both her and her Balmain gown inside an amazing ephemeral environment. Perhaps um, one of my personal favourites is a colour picture from 1953 of the model Lisa Fonsengreves. Lisa wears a dress of poppy cotton organdi which puffs out wide uh, over a a taffeta underskirt and she stands um, for the photograph in an extraordinary space that is entirely painted red 
and seems to be the the studio of some surreal and uh, mythical painter. The set itself was actually designed by Marcel Vertez, the French costume designer and illustrator. By the time of this shoot with Horst, uh, Vertez had won two Academy Awards, two Oscars, um, for his work on the 1952 film Moulin Rouge. So he was incredibly well known. And Horst loved to collaborate with Vertez and other uh, theatre makers and costume designers. And that's really, I think, a trademark of Horst's whole career from the very early years of the 1930s right through to the 1980s. Horst loved to work with talented artists and creatives. And, you know, I think that's incredibly important to think about when we look at fashion images. Um, we have to remember that this is a very collaborative, creative process. It's, it's never only about the talents of the fashion designer or the talents of the photographer. It's also about the skill of the model and the rapport the model has with the photographer. But the set designers, the prop makers, the furniture makers, all of those other individuals who build the world, the models inhabit. And when I look at this particular picture of Lisa Fonson Greaves, in the Vertez set, it's, to me, it's it's one of the most theatrical of horse pictures. It's almost as if he's created for the model uh, a miniature theatre set in which she performs in her exquisite Balmain gown. And uh, it particularly makes me think, actually, of the work of Cecil Beaton, who, of course, as well as being a master photographer, designed for many, many theatre productions and film and... Um, like Horst, Beaton loved to collaborate with other illustrators and artists of the day. As Susanna Brown just explained, Horst often wove in other creators into his shootings in order to create singularly impressive and original collaborative images. And that of Marcel Vertez, Lisa Fonsegrieve's shooting is one of the many examples of the beauty that could result from Horst's imaginative partnerships. Cecil Beaton was also a master of combining photography with collages, as well as his own beautiful sketches, something that we touched upon in our previous episode when we discussed the Vogue layout for Gertrude Stein's review of the first Balmain show. For that two-page spread, Beaton's elegant photograph of the new feminine Balmain silhouette was set on the right-hand page, and it was perfectly balanced by three black-and-white sketches, also by Beaton, that were set around the title text on the left-hand page. When Balmain was just starting out, presenting his namesake house's earliest collections in Paris, it was much more common for couture houses and publications to rely on illustrators. Illustrators like Vogue's Eric who, as we've seen, formed a key part of that horse shooting of Stein, as well as Beaton and Vertez, were important talents for leading fashion houses and magazines. There's one designer in particular with whom the House of Balmain has a long and rich history of collaborations, René Grau. Grau was born in Rimini, Italy in 1909. He came from an aristocratic Italian and French family. And after his parents divorced and his mother returned to France, he decided to ditch the name that he was born with, Renato Zavagli Ricciardelli, 
and opted for his mother's maiden name, Grau, instead. So Grau had known Pierre Beaumont ever since the designer was working with Lucien Long during the occupation. And as soon as Beaumont showed his first collection in 1945, Grau began illustrating the new house's strongest designs, both for Beaumont and the leading magazines. After that very first show, Grau selected the same luxury spin on a Verrouze pullover that Beaton wanted to photograph for Vogue, and Grau painted two beautiful 1945 illustrations of that very popular design. And as we mentioned two episodes ago, Alice B. Toklas selected Grau to illustrate her 1946 limited edition art pamphlet that praised Balmain's new French style. For that Toklas booklet, Grau created eight beautiful black and white images of the new Balmain woman. In fact, one of these images, that of the Balmain woman as she left the opera, relied on that same impressive cape and ruffled neck couture design that we see in the model towering over Stein during that iconic horse photo shoot inside the Balmain showroom. Pierre Balmain also turned to Grau for some of his house's first and most important campaigns. From 1947 through 1965, Grau oversaw the imagery used for the publicity of the house's perfumes. He began with an illustration of a reclining couture model speaking on the phone for Balmain's first scent, Ely 6483, which was cleverly named for the house's first telephone exchange number. Grau also drew the windswept models that were used for the ads for the Van Vere scent, as well as the multiple beautiful images used for the house's best-selling perfume, Jolly Madame, with Grau concentrating on the couture creations of the house for that series, painting a different collection's design for each new campaign. As Lynn Yeager makes clear, Balmain was not the only Parisian house relying on beautiful illustrations at that time. So, Horst and Balmain both highlighting the importance of fashion illustrators at the time. Today, it's pretty rare to see a fashion house really relying on illustrators, even amazing talents like Grau, to present their collection. But during Pierre Balmain's earliest years, it seems that it was probably much more commonplace, right? Totally. We all need to remember that when fashion magazines really first began, at the end of the 19th century, photography, film processing, and printing techniques were pretty primitive and very unreliable. So using beautiful drawings to illustrate fashion was a much safer, cheaper, and easier choice. That's one of the big reasons that both magazine covers and editorials relied on elegant fashion sketches and paintings. Also, if you look at early copies of Vogue, even from the 1920s, when they do use photography, they have no idea what a model should look like. And the model is often their dumpy wife or daughter. So Hmm. it's an amazingly, you really appreciate uh, the art of modeling when you look at these early pictures because the women have no idea how to stand Hmm. and they're not photogenic. So it's very much an eye-opener to see that evolution. Hmm. Fashion illustrations were often in color, at least on the most important pages of the magazines, and their aim was not to simply reproduce a design. They wanted to show how, why, and where the editors felt those new designs should be worn. And unlike a model, it can be, it's its really a dream. A sketch can be much more elusive and much hmm. more fantastical. Editors commissioned magazine illustrations to give their opinions and push different emotional responses, while of course always giving a feel of what the garment looked like and how it would presumably make a woman look better. 
Over time, a hierarchy of famous illustrators developed, exactly like what we have with photographers today, each with their own very recognizable style and technique. And once you've seen a few illustrations by Grau, you can quickly recognize his work whenever you see it. He was known for his, the mastery of his broad and flowing brushstrokes. It's easy to spot the Japanese influences in his designs, including inspiration pulled from kabuki theater and traditional woodcuts. Apart from the beauty of his drawings, you definitely have to admire him for his business savvy. Grau was obviously as smart as he was talented, and he wasn't about to limit himself to just creating fashion editorials and magazine covers. He made a lot of money creating some of the 20th century's most iconic advertising images for airline cinema, fashion, perfumes, beauty, and other luxury items from the most well-known French houses and international consumer brands. For several decades, his graphic and eye-catching illustrations were a common sight on kiosks and subway platforms, as well as page after page of fashion magazine advertisements. But of course, fashion technology and consumers changed. Photography, film, printing techniques advanced, as did models and the modeling industry, and advertisers began to prefer relying on a photograph's power to show something exactly as it was, as opposed to an illustrator's interpretation. Those same advertisers began pressuring magazine editors to show their products on editorial pages in photos as well. Hey, what's new? <laughs> little by little, artists were dropped and photography took over. By the mid-1960s, photography had more or less replaced illustration as the tool that fashion magazines relied upon. The evolution to today's total domination of photography over illustration in fashion probably began way back in 1932, when Vogue published its first cover that relied on a color photo. But the change was slow and very gradual. And at the time that Pierre Balmain first showed his couture designs, illustrators like Grau were still very much in demand. In fact, Grau managed to hang on much longer than most, continuing to create some of fashions and luxury's most iconic images into the 1980s. So this episode is the last of four dedicated to the first collection and first presentation of Pierre Balmain. We've examined the difficulties of that time, Pierre Balmain's daring, and his eventual triumph, as well as the famous artists, creators, and socialites that were connected to that moment. Several of the designs that we've touched upon over the past four episodes now form a part of the V&A Museum's permanent fashion collection. That special Balmain ensemble that Stein wore, the one which Susanna Brown described earlier when she was discussing horse shooting at Gertrude Stein's home, formed part of the 1971 exhibit at the V&A, which was entitled Fashion, an Anthology by Cecil Beaton. As you probably already guessed from the title, Cecil Beaton curated that exhibit, and he managed to amass a very large collection of some pretty spectacular couture pieces by relying on donations from as many aristo, celebrity, and society friends and connections. And that show's catalog, as Susanna Brown pointed out to me, could be described as a who's who of the 20th century, and two pieces that we spoke about in our last episode, Lady Cooper's Balmain Couture and Stella Carcano's Wedding Dress, along with that Stein Ensemble, were part of that exhibit and are now key parts of the V&A permanent collection. Beaton used his connections and charm to convince many of the lenders of the exhibition to donate the pieces that were shown to the collection permanently, uh, where they're still cared for today at the V&A. Another Balmain creation that featured in Beaton's exhibition is a stunning rose-patterned evening dress which dates from 1957. The dress is made of cream-printed silk uh, with a strapless body and the waist trimmed with applique rose motifs which shade into this glorious bouffant skirt. 
the dress was in fact worn by Lady Diana Duff Cooper at a ball given by the British ambassador for a visit of the Queen and Prince Philip in March of 1957. Also included in Beaton's exhibition uh, and now in the V&A collection is a very chic bridal jacket and headdress dating from 1945, made by Balmain from white satin, quilted and embroidered with gleaming pearls. The fitted jacket is waist length and it has long sleeves which taper at the wrist. The headdress um, is likewise padded and is in the form of a, a small chic matching pillbox cap. The pieces were originally worn with a white skirt by a woman named Stella Carciano um, at her wedding to Viscount Ednam early in January of 1946. And it's interesting reading Balmain's autobiography. He writes, this was the first society marriage for which I designed the brides and bridesmaids dresses. So this special commission was actually a very important piece for Balmain's early career. So over the past four episodes, as we discussed this house's very first couture presentation, we've occasionally drawn parallels and contrasts with the Balmain of Olivier Rustong and Pierre Balmain's Balmain. For example, when we first started examining the realities of life here in the French capital in 1945, which was a time of hardship, shortages, and anxiety, we discussed how the worries and challenges of that post-war moment forced both Parisian houses and designers to adapt, making them dream up entirely new ways of creating and presenting collections. Since buyers in the fashion press couldn't make it to Paris to view the latest creations, and because material and labor shortages made traditional large collections impossible, the Chambre Syndicale cleverly put forward a whole new way of creating and showing collections. The famous Théâtre de la Mode. The traveling couture collections of 1945 and 1946, with perfect scale model versions of the latest designs set up inside amazing tableaus and set off to tour the world. And we've recently seen how health and security measures of this recent pandemic year also compelled houses and designers to invent thoroughly new ways to create and present collections. 2020's strict lockdowns and regulations meant that we all had to find new ways to virtually create together at the same time that we were all required to work apart. And 2020 also forced fashion to consider new approaches to replace traditional runways, while hopefully still managing to satisfy fashion's need for a shared communal moment without ever endangering anyone's health. And Olivier Rustang has definitely proven himself to be both resourceful and determined. He conceived of exciting and clever ways to show a collection while still responding to the necessary distance requirements, setting up his models, singers, and dancers on a boat cruising up the center of Paris's Seine River, shooting campaigns in front of passersby in the Rue Saint-Honoré with the models and Parisians safely separated by the Balmain Boutique's heavy plate glass windows, and inviting followers, buyers, and editors to attend the Spring 2021 show virtually via dozens of large screens placed in the seating areas of the house's evening show, which was set inside the historic Jardin des Plantes. 
But perhaps the most interesting parallel between the house's beginning and Olivia Rostong's present might be spotted in the very latest Balmain presentation for the men's and women fall 2021 collections. For after a year of parallels between challenges that Parisian fashion faced both post-war and during pandemic, Rustang has taken the obvious next step. For it is now, as Rustang made clear in his interviews with the press, it's now the time to remember the joy that immediately followed Pierre Bamon's first show. As we all cross our fingers, optimistically hoping for soon to arrive better days, Olivier Rustang found inspiration in Pierre Bamon's joy after his first show. Because as Rustang told the press, 75 years ago, after that incredible triumph of his house's first couture presentation, what did Pierre Bamon do? He packed up his bags and he started traveling. He jetted off to America, not to talk about dresses or collections, but instead following the directive of his friend, Gertrude Stein, to act as a roving ambassador, crisscrossing the entire United States to deliver lectures on French culture and savoir-faire. He also jumped across the channel, transferring his fresh new feminine take on couture to London, six years after the war had abruptly put an end to all imports of Parisian fashion. And after an eight-day multi-stop series of flights across half the globe, he touched down in Australia, bringing news of his house's new French style to Don Under. And post-2020, it's a whole lot easier for all of us to appreciate just how exciting and just how liberating those trips must have felt for Pierre Valmont. After the anxious years of war and occupation, Pierre Valmont was suddenly being offered the long-denied possibility of escaping to destinations that he and everyone around him must have been dreaming about for years. And it must have felt incredible to be able to do it. Olivier Rustang's video for the Fall 2021 collection, filmed inside the impressive hangars of Air France at Charles de Gaulle Airport, as well as his men's and women's collections, aimed to channel that amazing sensation of freedom and liberty. And now, as we all think about the joy and optimism that the young Pierre Beaumont must have felt in late 1945, with the long war years finally over, and his daring, audacious gamble of that first collection having paid off, we also understand a little bit better that impressive power that travel offers us, helping to open minds, uplift spirits, and reunite those who have been kept apart, inspiring all of us as we look forward together to soon to arrive better days. Fleur de Paris, Fleur de Paris, qui ont venu Fleur de Paris, Madame, s'il vous plaît, achetez-moi ce Fleur de Paris, ça vous portera bonheur. Et vous, monsieur, voulez-vous acheter ce Fleur, sont des Fleur de Paris C'est une fleur de Paris, du vieux Paris qui sourit, car c'est la fleur du retour, du retour des beaux jours. Pendant quatre ans dans nos cœurs, elle a gardé nos couleurs. Le blanc rouge avec l'espoir et la fleurie, fleur de Paris, le paysan. La voyait fleurir dans ses champs, le vieux curé l'adorait dans un ciel tout blanc, fleur d'espérance, fleur de bonheur. Tous ceux qui sont battus pour la liberté, au petit jour l'ont vu briller, l'arbre de France. 
vieux Paris qui sourit, car c'est la fleur du retour. 